We are coming again today to the sixth disputation in Malachi. Malachi is structured around six disputations. We come to number six, and God's people are questioning the worth of following the Lord. So if you could turn in your Bibles to Malachi 3, starting in verse 13, or you can look up on the screen. Uh, We're going to go through chapter 4, verse 3. Hear the word of the Lord for us today. Your words have been hard against me, says the Lord. But you say, how have we spoken against you? You have said it is vain to serve God. What is the profit of our keeping his charge or of walking as in mourning before the Lord of hosts? And now we call the arrogant blessed. Evildoers not only prosper, but they put God to the test and they escape. Then those who feared the Lord spoke with one another. The Lord paid attention and heard them, and a book of remembrance was written before him of those who feared the Lord and esteemed his name. They shall be mine, says the Lord of hosts, in the day when I make up my treasured possession, and I will spare them as a man spares his son who serves him. Then once more you shall see the distinction between the righteous and the wicked, between one who serves God and one who does not serve him. For behold, the day is coming, burning like an oven, when all the arrogant and all evildoers will be stubble. The day that is coming shall set them ablaze, says the Lord of hosts, so that it will leave them neither root nor branch. But for you who fear my name, the sun of righteousness shall rise with healing in its wings. You shall go out leaping like calves from the stall, and you shall tread down the wicked, for they will be ashes under the soles of your feet. On the day when I act, says the Lord of hosts. This is God's word. You may sit down and let's pray as we come to understand his holy word. Let's pray together. Father in heaven, we are truly in awe of you. We need to hear from you today through your word. So Lord, we ask that the sword of your spirit would penetrate our hearts that we would be receptive to hearing what you have to tell us. And Lord, as we think of times of the end, I pray that you would refocus our minds for how we should live now. And so we pray these things in the name and authority of the Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. Well, when you know the end of a story... It changes the way that you interact with it in the present. This is true in a lot of areas, but it's uh, certainly true for movies. Sarah and I don't watch a lot of movies together, but last week we did. We watched one. It was like first time in two years, and it was a suspenseful movie. And throughout that movie, I was kind of on the edge of my seat. My heart was racing throughout the movie because I didn't know what was going to happen. I didn't know if someone was going to live or they were going to die. I was reacting in real time. And if you've ever watched a movie multiple times, you know that the first time you watch that movie, you're kind of like I was last week. You're just on the edge of your seat. You don't know what's going to happen. 
But when you watch it the second time, you know what to expect more. And so those twists and turns don't get you in quite the same way. And when it comes to our world today, most people live as if they don't know the end of the story. Most people are living as if they're watching the movie, the movie that God has laid out, the story of history for the first time. And so they live as if there are no consequences for their actions. They're reacting to life as it comes in real time. And for many of us, even those of us who are followers of Jesus Christ, we can slip into living in this same way, as if we don't know the end of the story. And if we forget the end, it will impact the way that we live today. And it will impact the way that we interpret our present circumstances. That's what the people in Malachi's day had done. They had forgotten the big picture. They had forgotten God's promises for the future, which meant they had a wrong interpretation of what was going on in their present day. And in today's passage, God's going to remind us of the end of his story, the coming day of the Lord, and how that should impact how we live our lives right now. If you haven't been with us, just by quick way of reminder, what's going on in the book of Malachi, uh, God's people at this time were struggling. They were not in a good place. They saw the prosperity of the wicked nations around them, and they were jealous. They were, uh, they had concluded that maybe just God didn't care about them, and they were uh, half-hearted in their worship at best. Many of them were blatantly disobedient. They had lost motivation in serving God. And they wondered, is it all worth it? Is serving God worth it? And maybe you are there even today in that same place. Well, in that context, the Lord spoke to his people. And today, he is speaking the same word to us And so what is he calling us to in this passage? In a sentence, it's this. uh, You note takers, this is a good thing to write down. Get ready for the Lord's return because the day is coming. Get ready for the Lord's return for the day is coming. And in this passage, we see three ways that we can get ready for the Lord's return. First, watch out for short-sighted accusations against God. We see that in verses 13 to 15. And second, make sure you are in the book. That's in verses 16 to 18. And then third, live in light of that day. That's in chapter 4, verses 1 to 3. So let's first think about how we can watch out for short-sighted accusations against God. It's not fair Why does he get what I'm not getting? If I don't get it, what's the point of obeying? I'm not relaying a four-year-old conversation with his parents. These are adults here. These are God's people complaining against their creator. And the Lord is calling them out on it. Look at verse 13. Your words have been Hard against me, says the Lord. 
This is a pattern throughout Malachi. God's people seem surprised or taken aback when God gives these assertions of how they are and what they're doing wrong. So listen to what they say. But you say, how have we spoken against you? Well, their hard words against God showed up in two main areas. First, they questioned the value of their own relationship with God. And second, they looked at the wicked and why they were prospering, and they concluded, well, they must be blessed. Well, the questioning of their relationship to God begins here in verse 14. Look with me there. It says, you have said it is vain to serve God. What is the profit of our keeping his charge or of walking as in mourning before the Lord of hosts? You see, God's people had fallen into this formulaic thinking. It was a trap they had fallen into, thinking that their relationship with God was a formula. And, And what was that formula? It was this, serve God plus keep his commands equals life will be prosperous. Life will work out for me. The problem was that they had the wrong formula. That's because life with God is a relationship. It's not a formula. And I wonder if some of us today have a similar unwritten formula when it comes to our relationship with God in our minds. Because if you think that doing A, B, and C will automatically result in X, Y, Z, likely you have this kind of formula in your minds. And if you have that formula, chances are you're gonna be prone to frustration. You're gonna be prone to anger at God or misunderstanding what he's doing in your life and in this world. So this common formula that we can adopt, the template we expect to work, goes something like this. Well, if I'm faithful to the Lord, then, of course, I'm going to be free from difficulty or extreme trial. I'm going to be free from all the things that other people are suffering from. I, I expect my life to kind of work out. Well, unfortunately, that's not how life works, the side of heaven. And so it's very dangerous to fall into this type of thinking in our relationship with God because bad things do happen to Christians. Loved ones die. People fail us. And life can hugely disappoint us. And even when you're doing everything quote-unquote right, the Lord still brings trials into our lives. We just got to look back at the biblical history. Look at Job. He was the most righteous man on earth, and look what the Lord brought into his life. Look at Joseph, sold into slavery. Look at Daniel, sent into exile and thrown even to the lions. Or David, who was chased by Saul for all those many years. Well, in verse 15, the people's hard words against God now shift to those who don't know God. So look there. And now we call the arrogant blessed. Evildoers not only prosper, but they put God to the test and they escape. Comparison is just so dangerous, is it not? It can lead us to just feel 
prideful because when we compare ourselves, we say, well, I'm, I'm better than you. Or it can lead us to envy because we look at someone and say, I could never attain to that. How did they get to that level? Well, in this case, it's the latter. God's people are looking at the lives of those who don't follow God in either within their nation or within the surrounding nations, and they see prosperity. They see ease of life. They see unfaithfulness to God without consequence. These people are living the high life. The reality is that the wicked likely were prospering. Those who didn't know God probably had an easier life than God's people. But the problem was that God's people had made the wrong conclusions from that reality. They were only considering the present, and they were not considering that God has all eternity in mind when he works in our lives. They were making conclusions about God on very limited information. And today it is so easy, is it not, to make similar conclusions when we see those who are not following God prospering. When we see uh, dishonest and greedy people getting ahead and finding success. But here in God's word we see that such conclusions are short-sighted. They are limited in perspective. When we're starting to think that way, we need to remember God's words of in uh, Psalm 49, when he says, be not afraid when a man becomes rich or when the glory of his house increases. For when he dies, he will carry nothing away. His glory will not go down after him. God is such an easy target, is he not, for our accusations and complaints. And to be sure in scripture, we are invited to pour out our complaint before God when it's done in an honest heart, but not in a way that slanders his character, not in a way that questions his holiness or his power. And I wonder today if you need to repent of hard words that you have about God, maybe not spoken out loud, but maybe just from your thinking. Maybe you've been questioning his wisdom or his goodness through a trial you're going through, or some difficult circumstances that he's placed you in. Or maybe as you look at the injustices of this world, you think, how could God be good? Is it really worth serving him in this kind of world? Or maybe you've been wondering, should I really follow God because my present actions are overriding what I know to be true? about him. Well, whatever is the case, if you have hard words about God, if you've been thinking things about God that aren't in line with his word, today is a good day to confess those things, to turn from those thinkings and and to uh, believe what is true. Well, so to sum up, these first few verses alert us to watch out for short-sighted accusations against God as we look forward and get ready to the Lord's return. Well, now we move into the next section of the text, and we're alerted to a remnant of God's people that aren't speaking these hard words about God. They are people who are going against the flow of the majority. And through their witness, a second way that we can get ready for the Lord's return emerges, and that's by making sure you are in 
the book. Making sure you're in the book. Look at verse 16. Then those who feared the Lord spoke with one another. You can imagine Malachi right now. He's prophesying to likely a large group of people. You might want to picture, if you've ever been to a concert, just a huge throng of people there. And as he's prophesying and saying these words, a small group of people is gathering over here at the side. They're, they're taking counsel with another. They're, they're talking to one another. They're considering what was said and they're responding to God's word. Well, the text goes on to say, the Lord paid attention to these people. He heard them. And a book of remembrance was written before him of those who feared the Lord and esteemed his name. So here we see God's grace on display once again. It's been on display throughout the book of Malachi in various ways. It seems as though these God-fearers, this group of people in this large throng of people were just merely talking to one another. They're talking about their commitments to follow the Lord, how they don't agree with the majority. And the Lord, who sees and hears everything, overhears their conversation. And the text says the Lord paid attention and he heard them. Friends, the Lord sees our entire life. He doesn't just see and hear when we're praying. He sees our entire life. And this should encourage us if you are following right now the Lord in a difficult situation. Maybe you're in a work environment where the culture is such that you are going against the flow. Or maybe it's a home environment, or maybe it's a school environment if you're a student, and you're wondering, how do I follow the Lord in this? Well, the Lord sees you. The Lord hears you. He pays attention to you as you're seeking to follow him in those environments. But this idea of a remnant of this group of people that the Lord pays attention to is not unique here in Malachi. The Lord throughout all scripture always rescues a remnant. He rescued a remnant from the worldwide flood in Noah's day. He rescued a remnant from Sodom and Gomorrah. He rescued a remnant when Jericho was gonna go down. This is the salvation pattern of God. He always rescues a remnant. Everyone is not destroyed. And so we see evidence of the Lord paying attention to and hearing those who feared the Lord by this book of remembrance that was written before him. The picture here is of a great king who has the history of his nation in these scrolls that are laid out before him that he can look to and remember. You remember uh, the king in Esther's day who, when he couldn't sleep, he had these scrolls laid before him and he remembered Mordecai and he rewarded him. And throughout scripture, God has a book. Here it's called a book of remembrance. In Daniel, there's another book that says that if you were written in that book, you'll be delivered on that last day. And then we look ahead to Revelation where there's this book of life where if our names are written in it, we will not be judged like the rest of mankind. So the, the question for us today is this. How can we, like those who feared the Lord in Malachi's day, how can we get into the book? How can our names be written down? Because the reality is that on our own, none of us fears the Lord well enough to get written down in the book. We're sinners. 
We fear other things than God. We fear man, we fear failure, we fear death, but we don't fear God in that way to be, getting, be, be written down in that book. So this verse is pointing us ahead to our need for a rescuer, our need for a savior. And that savior, Jesus Christ, did fear the Lord always. He esteemed the Lord's name without flaw. He obeyed all the commands of God perfectly and related to God as his heavenly father. And as he came to rescue disobedient rebels, his enemies, and make them his treasured possession. And so when we trust in Jesus, we get his perfect record. It's amazing. We also find that when we believe that our names have actually been written in God's book of life from the foundation of the world, that's what we learn in Revelation. We cannot write our name in God's book, but we can believe in Jesus, which will ensure that we are in that book. Well, in verse 17, we see wonderful blessings that come to us when we trust in Jesus. When we become those who fear God, by faith in Christ. Look what it says. They shall be mine, says the Lord of hosts, in the day when I make up my treasured possession. And I will spare them as a man spares his son who serves him. Well, here, what is the Lord doing? He's using language from Exodus 19. These promises to Israel, and he's recalling them to their minds. Exodus 19, verse 5, let me read it to you. It says this, Now therefore, if you will indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant, you shall be, now listen for it, my treasured possession among all peoples. For all the earth is mine, and you shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. So what God is doing here in Malachi is he's reminding those who fear him about his promise, that they are his treasured possession, that he will spare them or have compassion on them, like a father has compassion on his son on that day when the Lord comes. And the amazing reality for those of us who know and love Jesus Christ is that very same promise, those very same promises given to Malachi that were given to the Israelites in Exodus 19 are given to us in Christ. So remember what Peter said in 1 Peter 2, 9. He says, you are a chosen race, those who believe in the Lord Jesus. You're a royal priesthood. You're a holy nation. You're a people for his own, what? Possession. What a blessing it is to be in Christ. What security it brings to our souls. Think about it. When you trust in Jesus, you become his treasured possession. What do you do with treasured possessions? You, you love them. <laughs> you protect them. Uh, you don't let anybody touch them. I've got a treasured possession. Signed Michael Jordan ball. It's a, it's a treasured possession. No one's touching that thing. Except for my kids, you know, occasionally. But not outside. And this is what God does for those of us who trust in Jesus. He is, we are his treasured possession. He loves us. We are his. He's not giving us up. And the question for you today is this. Is your name 
written in God's book? If you know and love Jesus Christ, the answer to that is yes. Yes, it is. And hallelujah, yes, it is. But if you do not know the Lord Jesus, your name is not written. No matter how good you think you are, no matter how many good things you've done throughout your life, your name is not in that book. And as we come to the next section of judgment, you should be terrified. So today is a call, if you haven't yet trusted in Christ, to trust in him today with your life so that you might be written in that book. Well, verse 18 is a bridge verse to the next section. Just look there with me. Then once more you shall see the distinction between the righteous and the wicked, between the one who serves God and the one who does not serve him. So as we move on, God is going to show us that his people, that the vast difference between how he will treat those who fear him and those who do not serve him. There are two ways. There's the the narrow way and there's the broad way, to use Jesus' terminology. There are two fates that await you as a human being. And the difference is dramatic. Well, how can we get ready for the Lord's return? It's by making sure we're in the Lord's book, which is through surrendering our lives to the Lord Jesus. Well, now we've come to the third and final way that this passage helps us to get ready for the Lord's return, and that's by living in light of that day. So verse one of chapter four gives us a really what's a terrifying picture of the coming day of the Lord for those who don't yet know him or don't know him when he comes back, I should say. Let me read it. For behold, the day is coming, burning like an oven, when all the arrogant and all evildoers will be stubble. The day that is coming shall set them ablaze, says the Lord of hosts, so that it will leave them neither root nor branch. Remember earlier in the passage when God's people were calling the arrogant blessed? When they said, well, the, they were envying the prosperity of these evildoers and marveling at how they escaped God's judgment at that point in history? Well, these verses show how their words were so short-sighted. They, they were only looking at the present. They weren't looking at the, the big story, the big picture because the picture that is painted here is one of full and final judgment. The day described is like a fire within an oven, not those nice kind ovens that we have. They do get hot, but it's not a roaring fire. Back then, an an oven was a roaring fire. Think more like Daniel and less like your kitchen. So there's this day that's on fire, which is quite a picture. And then all the arrogant and evildoers will be incinerated. The, the further picture is that they will be set on fire. They will be set ablaze to the point where they will be destroyed. Their, their lives are pictured as trees and none of it, none of it, neither root nor branch will survive. Friends, this is a picture, a terrifying picture of the coming judgment of God for those who do not know the Lord Jesus. It should cause us to tremble as we read this description. So the next time you think that the wicked people in this world seem to be doing well and seem to be prospering and seem to be getting away with all their evil injustices in this world, 
Think of this picture. They're going to be set ablaze. They're going to be burned in the fire of judgment if they don't repent. And it should cause us to tremble. It should cause us to fear. What a stark contrast this is with the fate of those who fear the Lord. He is showing, God is, this distinction between the fate of the wicked versus the fate of the righteous. So look at verse 2. We see the fate of the righteous. But you who fear my name, for you who fear my name, the son of righteousness shall rise with healing in its wings. You shall go out leaping like calves from the stall, and you shall tread down the wicked, for they will be ashes under the soles of your feet on that day when I act, says the Lord of hosts. What incredible motivation these verses provide for those of us who are wondering, is it worth it to serve the Lord? Is it worth it to give my life to Christ? We need to go back to these verses because when we see the end, we know that yes, it is worth it. It is more than worth it. A few years ago, I got to witness a sunrise at a beach in Florida. And if you've ever been to the ocean and seen a sunrise, it's quite, quite amazing. It's, it's all dark and then you first see a little ray of the sun comes across the water and then few more rays and before you know it the whole sky is lit up and and there's light everywhere it's it's amazing well for those of us who have trusted in Jesus who who fear his name here there is a promise of a new sun rising and and it's a sun of righteousness and it's rays here they're called the wings it's like uh, another word for rays its wings are full of healing And the metaphor here in Malachi is really pointing us to the Lord Jesus. This is fulfilled in the person of Jesus. He is the light of the world. He brings healing to our spirits and joy to our souls. And when he returns, oh, what a rejoicing that day will be. This uh, picture is probably not familiar to most of us who don't have calves or stalls but calves leaping from a stall. The picture here is of joy, of like this reckless abandon of of, uh, freedom and joy that comes through the Lord Jesus. And on that day when he comes back, there will be no more crying, no more tears, no more pain. There will be everything that has been broken will be made whole again. It's a wonderful picture. And what a contrast to the picture of those who don't trust in Jesus. And on that day, justice will be served. We can guarantee that. All wrongs will be made right. The evildoers will be punished. And the wicked will be defeated once for all. And there will be this great reversal. Instead of you feeling like you are on the bottom and the wicked are prospering and they are winning, you will be treading over uh, the soles over their uh, feet there. Well, when is all this going to happen? God says in verse 3, he says it's on that day when he acts. You see, every prophet seemed to foresee this day of the Lord, this day of judgment that was coming on the earth. But they, when they saw, they didn't see the perspective. 
They couldn't see the distance, how far away this was going to be. But now we know that they were looking ahead to, yes, the first coming of Christ, but especially to, when we're thinking of the day of the Lord, the second coming of Christ, that return of Jesus on that day will he will come to judge the world. And on that last day, there will be a day of judgment. We can count on it. We read about it in Revelation 20. Let me read it to you partially from starting in verse 11. This last day. Then I saw the great, a great white throne and him who is seated on it. From his presence, earth and sky fled away and no place was found for them. And I saw the dead, great and small, standing before the throne and books, here are the books, the books were opened. And then another book was opened, which is the book of life. And the dead were judged by what was written in the books according to what they had done. And if anyone's name was not found written in the book of life, he was thrown into the lake of fire. Friends, if you know and love Jesus Christ, do not envy those who don't know Jesus. God has shown us what their end is. Instead, may the Lord give us compassion upon them to share the good news of Jesus Christ with them. Because the only way, the only way we can escape this wrath of God is by trusting in his son, Jesus. There is no other way. There is no other name under heaven by which we must be saved. So it doesn't matter how prosperous they seem to be, how happy your neighbors seem to be. If they don't know the Lord Jesus, their end is destruction. Again, if you do not know him today, if you're here with someone or you're just you've been wandering from the Lord or you've been around church and you think, well, if I go to church, it's gonna be enough. It's not enough. It's not what you do that matters. It's who you know that matters. So let today be the day that you trust in Christ or maybe come back to Christ. Maybe you know him, but you, you need to come back. He's calling you back. Well, for those of us who know and love Jesus, this should sober us. These verses should sober us. They're weighty. And our call today is also a call to trust in Jesus, not for salvation. If we've already done that, we have salvation in him. Praise the Lord. But trust in him by acting him, acting in light of his grace, of everything that he's given, that, that we act out of what he's done for us, out of joy, out of obedience to a father who loves us so completely, who has forgiven us so fully. I read these words a couple weeks ago, but I want to read them again from 2 Peter 3. It, it helps us see the motivation when we consider the end of this world, how we should act. Peter says in 2 Peter 3, since all these things are thus to be dissolved, what sort of people ought you to be in lives of holiness and godliness, waiting for and hastening the coming day of God. Friends, the coming day of God is coming soon. We don't know when, but it is coming. And so how are you living your life today? These are the questions we need to ask. We need to ask two questions if you know and love Jesus. One, am I ready for the Lord's return? And two, am I, how am I living in light of his coming? return right now, 
How am I living in light of this coming day of the Lord? The Lord has called us to give our lives for him. We are his treasured possession. Lives are not our own, they're his. But serving him is surely not in vain. Labor in the Lord is never in vain, Paul says. Serving the Lord is always worth it. Well, life is short. It is but a breath. But eternity is forever. These verses remind us that the Lord is coming back. We can count on it. There will be a day of judgment. These verses cause us to consider the end of God's story and how we should be impacted in the present because we know the end Your choice today will determine if that last day is going to be a day of unspeakable joy or unspeakable sorrow and pain. There was a British missionary named C.T. Studd. What a name, you know, C.T. Studd. Good athlete name. He He was an athlete too. And he died in the early 20th century. He was born into a life of privilege, but instead of going down that path, he chose to live as a missionary. He devoted his life to reach people in China, in India, in Africa. And we're going to close with a poem that he wrote called Only One Life Twill Soon Be Passed. And I want you to listen to this poem. It's a little bit long, just heads up. And just think about how is the Lord calling you to respond in light of that last day. Here it is. Two little lines I heard one day traveling along life's busy way, bringing conviction to my heart and from my mind would not depart. Only one life will soon be passed. Only what's done for Christ will last. Only one life, yes, only one. Soon will its fleeting hours be done. Then in that day, my Lord to meet and stand before his judgment seat. Only one life will soon be passed. Only what's done for Christ will last. Only one life, the still small voice, gently pleads for a better choice, bidding me selfish aims to leave and God's holy will to cleave. Only one life will soon be passed. Only what's done for Christ will last. Only one life, a few brief years, each with its burdens, hopes, and fears, Each with its clays I must fulfill, living for self or in his will. Only one life will soon be passed. Only what's done for Christ will last. When this bright world would tempt me sore, when Satan would win a victory score, when self would seek to have its way, then help me, Lord, with joy to say, only one life will soon be passed. Only what's done for Christ will last. Give me, Father, a purpose deep in joy or sorrow, thy word to keep. Faithful and true, whatever their strife, pleasing thee in my daily life. Only one life will soon be passed. Only what's done for Christ will last. Oh, let my love with fervor burn, and from the world now let me turn. Living for thee and thee alone, bringing the pleasure on thy throne. Only one life will soon be passed. Only what's done for Christ will last. Only one life, yes, only one. 
Now let me say, thy will be done. And when at last I'll hear the call, I'll know, I'll say, t'was worth it all. Only one life, t'will soon be passed. Only what's done for Christ will last. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we are sobered by this text of Scripture. Lord, we know that your words are true and they will be accomplished. And so, Lord, these words cause us to tremble at the coming judgment of those who don't know you. They cause us to rejoice if we know and love Jesus that that is not our fate, but our fate is bound up with the Lord Jesus. So, Lord, help us to live lives worthy of you in light of your grace, empowered by your grace, seeking to share this good news with others, seeking to live in ways that would honor you, that would store up treasures for all eternity. And Lord, for those who don't yet know you, who are listening, Lord, make them so uncomfortable in their unbelief Help them to see, open their eyes, Lord, that the path they're on is leading to destruction, but your arms are open wide. And so, Lord, let them turn to you even now. We thank you for your word. We thank you that you have shown us the end of the story, that we're not in the dark, that we can know what the end is so that we can make decisions even now for all eternity. And so, Lord, we pray that you would uh, cause us to apply this word into our lives that we would not just be hearers, but we'd be doers of it. And we pray that in the name of the Lord Jesus.